Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. We are in Acts chapter 19, if you'd like to turn there. If you got, if you got old school Bible here, hard copy, or you got electronic version, either one, both are good. Um, open them up. And um, we're, we're, we're in the middle of it here, of, of chapter 19 of Acts, um, the history book of the New Testament. Um, you know, it is that time, speaking of, it is, it is basketball season, all right? And just because of the nature of that and because of the close proximity, okay, that, that fans have to the court, to the players, as well as the coaches, there's sometimes some dialogue that you will hear that you won't typically hear for, for other sports, just many times because of distance, because of noise, that sort of thing. And um, I'll tell you this, right, right now, what I'm going to say next is, is it can be viewed very much as a compliment. It is a compliment to be known by your opponent. It absolutely is. I mean, if you've watched much basketball, I promise you, you have heard this type of language before. This is a coach speaking. I told you to not let him have the ball. Stay on him. Do not let him get the ball. I told, how about this? I told you, don't let her shoot. I've heard, I've heard Coach Washburn say that both in junior high and high school because we got a Coach Washburn in each over at Caney. I've heard them both say that. Why did you let her shoot the ball? That's the only person I said don't let shoot the ball. All right? It's a good thing. It's a good thing to be known by the opponent. Um, on that note of basketball, on a little more serious note, I, I am not a big NBA guy. I love college basketball. I didn't like it so much this week, okay? But I love college basketball. And, um, but I, I just don't do, much with the, I don't do much with the NBA. But there was one story from the NBA the past few years that really caught my attention. And it didn't have much to do with what was going on the court. It had to do with a player. He played for a number of years. He's retired now. Some view that he might have been kind of forced to retire. Um, played for the Boston Celtics for a period of time. His name is Enos Conter. Okay? Um, he, he's not only a basketball player, retired basketball player at this point, but he's a human rights advocate. And some of you are kind of shaking your head, yes, you know what I'm talking about here. He's, he's native to the country of Turkey. Um, and he has been in places throughout the world, obviously, where he's seen uh, a massive violation of human rights. The one he really speaks out against mainly is China. Okay? And, uh, and, and that's part of the reason some kind of view this site that he might have been kind of forced to, to remove himself from the NBA. Here's, here's the thing about his, his home. He's a, he's a citizen of the United States now. He was actually, when he found this out, he was overseas. I can't remember exactly where he was at, but he was somewhere over in Europe, and he got, he got word from the FBI, said, get back to the United States now. Like, right now. Do not pass go collect $200. Okay, you come back now. And the reason for that was his native government, the government of Turkey, put a $500,000 bounty on his head. Not for death, but that's probably what would have happened, but for capture. Um, because of the way in which he was speaking out against the violation of human rights, the mistreatment of people. And I'll tell you, let me ask you again, this question, and now on the basketball court, it's good to be known by your enemies, but what about when the stakes are higher? When the stakes are higher, is it good to be known by the enemy? The Apostle Paul is in Ephesus. That's where we left him last week, okay? Um, and as we saw and as we talked about last week, 
His good friends, the husband-wife team of Priscilla and Aquila, have prepared the way for him very, very well. They've been, they've been speaking and working for the Lord. As we will see, even in this passage today, it's not Paul alone or the apostles alone who are working for the Lord at this time. And, and as Paul comes into Ephesus, he does what he usually does. Look at verse 8 of Acts 19. This is what it says. And he, he is Paul. And Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Okay, the last time the Apostle Paul was in the synagogue in Ephesus, he was just bringing to an end the second missionary journey. He was coming to a close, and he was on his way to Palestine. He went to Jerusalem, and then he went from there to, to Antioch, which is kind of his home base church. And as he makes his way there, he stops in Ephesus. The first time he wanted to go to Ephesus, the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't. You can't go there. Okay? So this time, as he goes there, he's, he's allowed to do it. And as he goes to the synagogue and begins preaching about Jesus, they ask him, will you please remain? Will you please stay? And he's like, no, I'm on my way. I'm on my way back home. Uh, if the Lord wills, I will be back. And obviously, the Lord willed it. And the Apostle Paul is back. The missionary, third missionary journey is well under its way now. And we find Paul in the synagogue. Um, this is what he does. We know this. When Paul came to any town, when he came to any city with the message of the gospel, the first place he went was the synagogue. Because there he would have Jews, there he would have God-fearing Gentiles, which were Gentiles who were as Jewish as much as they could be. And they were the ones who should respond to the message of Jesus. Now, it didn't always work out that way, but they were the ones that should. So he gets there, and we are told he reasons with them, he debates with them, he speaks with them for three months. And unfortunately, what happens next, we are all too familiar with by now in our journey through the book of Acts. Let's take a look at it. Verse 9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Okay. Um, first of all, Paul's there for three months, and then he begins to get some opponents, gather some opponents there, who begin, who begin criticizing not only him, but criticizing his message, criticizing the group that he's a part of. We know the group was the church. Now, the church, the, this isn't the first time we've seen the church labeled in this way, the way, okay, wearing that title. The first time we see this is Acts chapter 9. A little bit about where that comes from, because if you look at your verse 9, is that, is that capitalized? Is way capitalized? Hopefully it is, it should be, because there's a designation there, okay? Um, again, first time we see it in Acts chapter 9, but that's not the first time we see it in Scripture. Yesterday, um, I had the privilege, and it truly is a privilege, to, um, to be in front of a group of people talking about somebody who, who has passed. It's not an easy privilege, but I do consider it a privilege. And, and yesterday, I was, I was before a large group of people, not only here, but out in the gym as well. It was a big service for, um, for Marty Smith. I mean, you've been around here for a while, or even in this town, you know um, the, the impact of him in this community, in this county, uh, him serving. Um, many of you know him from Sunday mornings being across the road. Many of you served in coffee across the road on Sunday mornings. Um, it was his funeral service yesterday. And um, as we were in here, I spoke about this passage some of, of, of Jesus. This is what's going on. And I'll make it very quick. It was shortly before Jesus' death and he's with his closest followers 
And he basically tells them they know the way where he's going. And good old Thomas, we're thankful for Thomas, all right, because Thomas helps us out and he says, uh, where are you going? We don't know the way. And you remember how Jesus responded to him? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So that's how this, this early church was designated in some circles, the way. And that's why it's capitalized, because it's referring to Jesus himself. So you have people, Paul for three months has been speaking about Jesus in the synagogue, and you have people who began to oppose that message, began criticizing Paul, began slandering, cursing the way, and Paul's like, okay, I'm done with it. So he gathers up those who have responded to the message of the gospel, and he goes somewhere. This, remember in Corinth, he went next door to a guy's house, like literally right beside the synagogue, worked out quite well. Here he goes to a different place. It's the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus. Now, <laughs> there's kind of an ongoing joke amongst, um, amongst Bible commentators of, of who gave this guy his name because the school's named after him. It's where he teaches people, and that's his job is to teach people. And they wonder, did he get that name from mom and dad or did he get it from his students? Because you know what word we get in English from this Greek word? Tyrant. <laughs> All right? Any students ever called your teacher a tyrant before? I mean, it's kind of old school language, you know what I'm saying? All right? So, I don't know, who knows? But I will tell you one thing about this Tyrannus. He offered up willingly his place, his occupa- place where he does his occupation, for Paul to come and speak the message of Jesus Christ. Now, Here's something that you might not know. I didn't know until studying this about the, the Roman society in that specific part of the empire. Okay? They had something in common with our neighbors south of the border. I don't mean the Kansas-Oklahoma south of the border. I mean the border of our nation. If you ever been to Mexico on a mission trip or anything along those lines, you will find out if you're amongst the people of Mexico that they have a time-honored practice that happens in the middle of the day. Anybody know what it is? The siesta, yes, very, very nice. Siesta, wouldn't that be nice if that was adopted in the United States to become part of the work day? After lunch, you get an hour and a half to two hours of, of rest. Um, like kindergarten, like kindergarten. Put your heads down and take a nap. No, no heads up, thumbs up right now. If you're good, we'll do heads up, thumbs up in a little while, okay? All right, so um, that's, that's what they do in Mexico. That's what they did there. As a matter of fact, <laughs> it's funny because some some writers of the day we call them historians now but then they were just writers and and they they would say that in that part of the roman empire you were more likely to find more people asleep at 1 p.m than 1 a.m okay sounds like college right all right so so what you got going on here in this school of terrainus he probably till about 11 a.m that's when that siesta started would teach at that same time paul is likely somewhere working Okay? And we'll find out he is absolutely working through what happened. We, we get some details about what happens next. So he's probably working in the morning. He's a, he's a leather worker. He's a tent maker. He's doing that. And then when that time, that 11 a.m. siesta bell would ring, Paul would not go take a nap. He would go to the school of Tyrannus, and he would begin preaching the message and telling people about Jesus. And those who weren't sleeping would come and listen. All right, And he did this, we are told, in verse 10, for two years. Take a look at it. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now understand something here. Ephesus, kind of like Corinth, was the center focus for Achaia. 
Ephesus is the center focus for Asia. It's a very important place. But something we need to understand, and this makes it clear to us, Paul stayed in Ephesus for two years. I'm not saying he never left, but that's where he stayed for the most part. Brothers and sisters, it wasn't just Paul at work here. There were others. It wasn't just Priscilla and Aquila. There are names that will pop up and that we'll begin to see from the book of Ephesus, from the book of from, from 1 and 2 Corinthians, as well as from Acts, that there are other people at work too. And they're at work and they are preaching the message of Jesus Christ and they are doing it so effectively and so passionately that all who are in Asia heard the message. I do not think this is an exaggeration by Luke. I think it's the truth. There is lots of work going on for the Lord. Laodicea, Colossae, um, Aeropolis. These are places there in Asia that people are hearing about Jesus Christ. There is a lot of work being done for Jesus. And guess what? What happens next? It's about to get, it's about to get just a little bit crazy, okay? You ever been working on a project at home before that gets a little above your head? I know for some of you that never happens. For me, it happens every stinking time, okay? It does not take much when it comes to projects to get over my head. And whether it's my dad or whether it's somebody here from church, whoever it might be, it is nice to have somebody come and help. And even though it's nice sometimes to just pay somebody to come and get something done, it's also kind of nice to have somebody come and not only do the work, but work with you and show you how to do this. Um... Now, don't get me wrong. I, I have no problem with paying somebody to come get the job done while, while I'm watching TV. I got no problem with that, okay? But sometimes it's kind of nice to not only have the work done, but be included in the work being done. As we see, Paul is not the only one at work here in Ephesus. There are others at work as well. But this time in particular, I'm not talking about Priscilla and Aquila. I'm not talking about those other companions and and, and colleagues of the Apostle Paul, God was at work too. Okay. So, so let's, let, let's take, take a look at this. Um, verse 11 and 12. This is happening in Ephesus. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So we not only have Paul and colleagues working, we have God working through them, God working specifically through Paul. And even more specifically, we get from Luke here what's taking place. Dr. Luke, that is, okay? So Dr. Luke knows a little bit about, about illness, about disease. And this is what's going on. There are healings taking place. There are exorcisms taking place, the casting out of demons. And then it says something kind of interesting. Did you catch that? It was to such a point, God was working to such a level that handkerchiefs and aprons being taken from the Apostle Paul were used to bring healing to people. Now let's think about this for just a moment. First of all, I tried to find where the word handkerchief came from. All right? Because I, 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 I can't. I mean, have you ever seen how it's spelled? Handkerchief. I mean, where does that come from? I mean, why didn't they just come up with... I mean, it does not make sense. I guess you hold it in your hand, but this isn't a kerchief. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what this is. But I did find this out. I couldn't find the exact origin, but I found out it's been, this word's been around a long, long time. And a lot longer than the handkerchief that my dad had in his back pocket his entire life, all right, that I don't know if he ever washed the thing. 
I seriously don't. My dad offers you a handkerchief, don't take it, okay? Okay, I know for a fact mom and dad are at church in Altamont, so I can say this right now. I won't get in trouble. I think part of the reason my dad always had a handkerchief is because my mom wanted a wallet in one side and a handkerchief the other because he just didn't have much back there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Don't tell my parents I said that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I got the same thing from dad, but, but Donna hasn't made me start carrying handkerchiefs in my back pockets yet. All right, so, all right, what we got going on here is handkerchiefs and aprons. Now, apron, that's a pretty good translation, but the apron is a little bit different. A lot of us think of apron working in the kitchen, but there's also a nail apron out there. We actually probably call them tool belts. I got a, I got a couple of them, Blair. They're in really good shape <laughs> at my house, all right? Uh, that's kind of accurate, and that's something Paul would use to wear around his waist. He would have tools there as he was working with leather, so on and so forth, okay? Now, now the other one, though, this handkerchiefs, is not the most accurate translation that could be maybe some of your bibles have this literally in the greek it's a sweat rag okay so these are these are things that paul would use he would use an apron to hold his tools that's what tells us that paul was working at the time and he would use this sweat rag and then people wanted the sweat rag and we're not talking about (laughs) should we go with bon jovi again this tim i'm just not sure he said i need to update my i need to update my illustrations just a little bit but i don't even know if good grief Musicians these days are pansies. They don't even use sweat rags. Man, you go, you go to concert in the 80s, baby. All right, they're sweating all over the place. I mean, Kiss, their makeup's all messed up because of their sweat. You know what I'm saying? All right, so, and you find, you can probably still find them on eBay today, a sweat rag from a Bon Jovi concert, all right? And man, they'll sell for, they'll sell for some money, okay? These people are taking sweat rags from Paul's workshop and not selling them on eBay They're using them to heal and to cast out demons. That's just, that's crazy to me. It's not alone something like this. This isn't the only time we've seen this in scripture though. You might remember Jesus. Mark records it. John Mark. Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 6, where the crowds were coming so tightly around Jesus because they they just wanted to touch the fringe of his of his cloak as he passed by. And look closely, it says they were healed. Then you look at Acts chapter 5 when Peter is in Jerusalem walking around. They are laying lame people in certain places so that when he walks by, his shadow would touch them. Now, Luke doesn't go into detail to see if that actually worked, but that just shows you what the people thought of the power of God working through these individuals. And here, Luke, as we see next, he's not going to focus so much, Dr. Luke is not going to focus so much on the healings. He's going to focus more on the exorcism. And we'll see in what happens next. We're going to see, I'm telling you, this is where it gets a little crazy. If it happened today, it would be all over Facebook and YouTube. I'm promising you that, okay? So let's take a look at it. Verse 13 says this. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, and then we even get a quote of what they were saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then Luke just kind of stops. We know the rest probably is come out of him or come out of her. So they were trying to command demons 
by the name of Jesus. You see, the name of Jesus was so potent a weapon when battling spiritual darkness that other exorcists began to see this and think, hmm, there might be something to this. Okay, let's talk about this for a little bit because we get, we get a group here introduced to us, Jewish exorcists. Who are these people, all right? It even tells us there in these couple of verses that they go from place to place. They travel around. So they're kind of traveling peddlers of exorcism. That's, that's basically what they do. They make a living by casting out demons. And I'll tell you something. In that day and in that time, it was a pretty lucrative living. Here's the funny thing about it, though. Our scripture here mentions specifically Jewish exorcists. Now, there were exorcists also who were not Jewish. And let me tell you, we probably should have learned by now from the book of Acts that the Jews weren't really looked that well upon by many in the Roman Greco, the Greek-Roman society. So why in the world would these traveling Jews be traveling around Gentile territory trying to cast out demons amongst those who probably were not Jews. And this is where a little bit of history kind of comes involved in this. Among the secular practitioners of magic, the sorcerers, if you will, and by secular I mean they're not Jewish, okay? They're Romans, they're Greeks. And amongst that, that, that probably small kind of collection of people, that small group, of, of, of people, the specialists, if you will, in this type of thing, the Jews carried a very high respect amongst that group. You see, when they saw the Jews, they, they, they believed that they had very special spells at their disposal. There's a reason for this. We've got to dig a little bit deeper into Hebrew history for this. In the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, you will see there's, there's a variety of names used for God amongst the people of Israel. One of them that is, that is quite well known is Jehovah. You see that. The one that is probably highest on the totem pole, though, the one that has some mystery even yet today surrounding it, and you've probably heard this or read this in your Bible, Yahweh. Yahweh. There, there, there's, this, is an interesting, this is an interesting word. There were those amongst those of Israel say, you don't pronounce that. Matter of fact, Yahweh, that's just kind of our understanding of maybe kind of what it looked like. There's still mystery. It's kind of, it was, it was almost like the, the unpronounceable name of God. Okay, the, the, the Israelites, they, they had such a high respect for this that they very rarely used it. And I'll tell you what, if you were outside of Israel, if you were a Gentile, and you were in Hebrew company, and you tried to use that name, look out. Because, because Gentiles, pagans, they, they don't use, they're not, that's not supposed to come out the lips of an unclean person. Okay? Now here's the thing. This was well known. This was well known. And these magicians, these sorcerers, these exorcists among the Greeks, when they viewed that, they misinterpreted it as this, that this name had magical power that the Jews, the Israelites, they just wanted for themselves. They didn't want any of the Greeks to have this, all right? Matter of fact, there, even in the last couple of centuries, have been a couple of, of ancient um, fragments of papyri, just, just writings of the day, of, of spells used for healings or, or for the casting out of demons. And you can find that there were times when this holy name 
of God was used amongst the Greeks who did not know him in any way whatsoever. But here in Ephesus, get this. They're going beyond the use of that name of God. They are using the name of Jesus. They're using the name of Jesus. Using Jesus' name was gaining traction. As I've already told you, this is a very, very lucrative business. So let's see what happens. Verse 14. It says this. Seven sons of Sceva, a, Jew, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. We're doing what? They were trying to cast out demons using the name of Jesus through whom Paul preaches. We get the blueprint of what they were trying to do in the verse before. Now this Sceva guy, we don't know much about him. His name is not like some some high-level name amongst the Jews or anything. More than likely, he just was a self-proclaimed chief priest. I mean, you put that on a you put that on a plaque and put it above your put above your door, and you're going to get a little more money when you do something for people. All right. So, um, so anyway, so he's he's nobody special by any means whatsoever. But he's got seven sons. He's got seven sons here. Okay, and these seven sons kind of lean a little bit into their dad being a, a chief priest because amongst these these Gentiles, the very superstitious people, they would think, well, a chief priest must really know how to use those fancy names. All right, he's got a lot of power at his disposal. But his sons, they decide to use the other name they've been hearing about, the name of Jesus. <laughs> they were very unaware of the fact that this weapon could blow up in their hands. <laughs> All right. Just so I, we get the formula, look at the verse before. I adjure you, so this is probably similar to what these sons of Sceva would say. I adjure you by the name of Jesus. What's next? Whom the Paul, now I wouldn't call him an apostle, but Paul preaches, and they'd probably finish it by saying, come out of him, come out of her. All right? Let's see what happens. Verse 15, they say that, and they're in a house, where there is a guy with an evil spirit, and this is what happens. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? There's some humor there, by the way. I I know I probably didn't present that quite well, but that's funny. All right, look what happens next. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I am guessing that there is a significant number of people in this room. We've talked about it before, so I know that there's a significant number of people in this room that learn things on a regular basis the hard way. Okay? There's some of you in this room, I'd like to include myself in this group, that like to learn things the easy way. Okay? But let me tell you something. If at the end of your lesson, you're bleeding, you probably learned something the hard way. Not always, but you probably did. Um, The fact that this demon-possessed man is energized by the power of the demon, this is not the only time in Scripture that we see something like this take place, this sort of phenomenon. You might remember Jesus meeting a man who is demon-possessed, not by one demon, but a legion of demons. Okay? Um, who could break chains, who terrified the people. He was, he was the local Nazi monster, you know what I'm saying? Okay, 
All right? This isn't the only time we see something like this, something like this taking place. And these poor fellows, my goodness, they learn a lesson. Not only a lesson in, in, that, in blood, but a lesson in humility too. It's not that the demon just beats them to a pulp. What else does he do? He strips their clothes off of them, kicks them out. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to run out of a house bleeding. It's another thing to run out of the house bleeding and completely in the buck. All right? So right through the middle of town. All right, this is going to this, this catch some attention here. This is the thing, though. I don't want to focus on that too much. What I want to focus on is what the demon says. I, so, so, so look at it again, just kind of, as I, as I read through this, take a look at it. The demon says some things here very specifically. Now keep in mind, just to make sure we're all on the same page, what did these seven sons of Sceva say to the demon? We, or I, adjure you by the name of Jesus, of whom Paul preaches, come out of the man, all right? And the, the man says, with the demon power empowering him, says, I recognize Jesus. Jesus' half-brother talks to us a little bit about that in a book that wears his name, James. James. He, there's a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. This James was a half. James was a half brother of Jesus. We read quite a bit about him in the Book of Acts. He's kind of the kind of the the chief elder of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote what we have is James, and within that, I mean, uh, James is man. It's it's like it's like the practical book of the New Testament. I mean, it it really really is. Um, and there's a portion of James where he is telling believers this. He's he says, your works matter. They do. It, faith is incredibly important, but that faith needs to be backed up by works. To the point that he says this, faith without works is dead. Right? And then he goes on to say this sort of thing. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He says, you say you believe in God? Big deal. The demons believe in God. And you know what he follows it with? And they shudder. See, this, this demon speaking to these seven sons of Sceva say, I recognize, I recognize Jesus. And, he, and this demon's terrified. Terrified of Jesus, okay? So, and then he follows it with this. He says, I know about Paul. <laughs> yeah, this demon knows about Paul. He and his fellow demons have been getting their backsides kicked by Paul for a long time now, all right? So it's like, we recognize, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? You see, Paul was known by the enemy. And this enemy could not help. Do you see in this verse, I hope you do, that you're, you're a, you have an ability to read between the lines just a little bit. And I hope you see in this verse a begrudging, a begrudging respect of this demon for the Apostle Paul. Yeah, we know Paul, all right. I know Paul. Okay? Paul was known by the enemy. But who are you? Who are you, seven guys? More about that in a second. Look what happens next, verse 17. This became known to all. They didn't have Facebook, they didn't have YouTube, but you know what they did have? I had these, this thing right here, all right? And it's still the biggest spreader of news in our society today, <laughs> all right? Okay. 
And they talked about this. This is something that you talk about. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. You know, superstition was somewhat rampant in that culture, okay? So when they hear something like this taking place, my goodness, they know the name of Jesus is not to be trifled with. It is not. And that is the name in which salvation was being proclaimed throughout all of Asia. I mean, this was a good thing. This was a very good thing. But when I look at this, you know what I see? I see two questions for you and me. Question number one is this. Are we known by Jesus? Are we known by Jesus? Are you known by Jesus? Jesus, there is no more important question. No more important question than that one. Because this is the thing. Everybody will meet Jesus one day. And if you don't know him and he doesn't know you, it will not end well for you. You see, I've been here I've been here, dear, for a long time now, and there are those of you who have heard me talk about this before. There is so much of a difference between knowing about and knowing. When I was in fourth grade, I still remember this. When I was in fourth grade, my goodness, you know who the guy was? Marcus Allen. Marcus Allen. Can you believe I was in the fourth grade? I, I was a fan of a guy who played for the Raiders. <laughs> Don't think bad of me, please, all right? Played for the Chiefs later, so it's all good, all right? I knew everything about Marcus Allen. I knew where he went to college. I knew where he went to high school. I knew he won the Heisman Trophy. I knew that he was, this is what I like to tell people, he was born on my birthday, although that was kind of backwards, all right? I knew all of these things about Marcus Allen. I knew how many yards he rushed for each year. I knew how many touchdowns he had. I knew that he led the Raiders to a Super Bowl. Now, others will say other people did it, but it was Marcus Allen, in my mind, who led them to the Super Bowl as rookie season in the NFL. I knew all of these things about Marcus Allen, all right? But here's the deal. I didn't know him. You know how I did know And the man in my life who really truly was my hero at the time was my dad. And I didn't just know about my dad. I knew my dad and my dad knew me. There's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. And if you don't know Jesus personally as Lord, as your Savior, I beg of you, Get that taken care of ASAP. What are you waiting for? Question number two, and this is for those of us who do know Jesus. Question number two, are we known by the enemy? Satan works a little differently these days in our society, okay? I've been in ministry for over 22 years now, and not once yet have I been asked to come and perform an exorcism, okay? I don't know what I would do if I was asked about that. I I don't know. I don't know. I I don't have much expertise practically in that area. I don't. 
Because for the most part, Satan doesn't work in that way in our society. I'm not saying he doesn't completely. And keep one thing in mind about Satan. He's not God. He's not omniscient. He does not know everything. Okay? God alone knows that. Satan is a falling angel. Right? Who is terrified of God. But Satan isn't alone. Satan has others with him. So, so that, 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 that comes up to quite a, taking Jesus out of the picture for us. That's a pretty impressive group, all right? Take Jesus out of your life, you're going to have a hard time battling Satan. I'll tell you that straight up. Now, Satan does work in a little bit different ways because Satan is perfectly fine with the society not believing he exists. You understand what I'm saying? So Satan is perfectly fine hiding behind the curtains and doing his work. Because most people who don't believe in Satan also don't believe in God. And that's Satan's goal. Okay? But Satan is still at work. And my question for all of us is are we known by the enemy? I want to be known by the enemy. What about you? I'm not talking about wearing a target. To be completely honest with you, I don't think Paul even cared. I think Paul was so much about the work of Jesus Christ, and Paul was so used to opposition, he didn't even think about the demons except for the ones that he was kicking their backsides and casting them out of people. Paul was known. What about you? Are you allowing God to use yourself in such a way that the demons know about it? Are you spreading light in your part of the world in such a way that you are very frustrating to the powers of darkness? You know, Paul, let's talk about it. You do realize that, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And he doesn't use... The, the, the pronoun of I, first person, he uses, he uses includes himself, but, but he says we. And he's talking about the spiritual warfare that takes place. And he's talking about this and saying, our weapons are not physical weapons. I don't go grab something and battle with it. My weapons, this is what Paul says, he says our weapons, our weapons are spiritual weapons of light. And with those, we attack, we assault Fortresses of darkness. Paul will talk about it again in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Where he's at right now, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness. Are you known by the enemy? Are you such a spreader of God's light? Are you such a proclaimer of the love of Jesus Christ that the enemy knows you? What an incredible goal.